everybody. I'm Karen Hartglass. You're listening to another episode of It's All About Food. This one is going to be a delicious episode. And why is that? Because we have on the program Chef Mark Reinfeld. I've had him on the It's All About Food podcast maybe three times, four times, and the last time was nine years ago. It's been too long. Yeah, and I'm looking at you, and I haven't seen you in so long, so I'm giving you a big virtual hug. Great to see you, Karen. Thanks so much for having me on the show again. Yeah, and so since it's been nine years, you're going to have to catch me up on everything you've been up to, so Uh, go. (laughs) Two kids have joined the entourage since Mm. then. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, so uh, I now I'm beginning to know the meaning of the word busy busy vegan dad (laughs) so uh people ask how long we'll raise our kids vegan and i'll say i say until they're old enough to decide for themselves like 23 or 24 years old (laughs) and uh yeah i think i've have a few new cookbooks uh since i saw you last i think healing the vegan way came out years ago and then a book uh the ultimate age defying plan which I, wrote I remember with, those. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wrote with my wife, Ash, that one was 2019. I believe the last one came out uh, and she's a plant-based naturopathic doctor. So uh, it's on healthy ve- aging, healthy aging for as a vegan. So that's in the, the book world. And I've been still traveling around doing workshops and immersions. Uh, we have uh, I do virtual trainings now uh, post COVID, so I'll share more as as we talk. But that's uh, that's it in a nutshell. Still really committed to showing people how easy it is to create plant based food that tastes good, and it's a form of activism for me. Just we we could talk all day long about Absolutely. why we should eat vegan, but if the food doesn't taste good, it doesn't go very far. So that's what I've devoted my career to. I think you're doing the most important work. I agree with you. (laughs) We can give people all the reasons and yet nothing works better than putting something delicious in someone's mouth and saying, I could eat like this. If you cook for me, I can eat like this. That's what my mom says. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know that Summerfest just happened and you've been doing the meals for Summerfest for a long time now. Yes. Yeah, that was quite an event. So it's uh, the North American Vegetarian Societies. It was actually their 49th annual uh, summer fest. And that was it was my ninth year running the kitchen there. And we had a lot of the plant based luminaries as presenters and doing, uh, you know, like a lot of the doctors there. They love being there. It's a very uh, informal setting. And uh, I run the kitchen there with a another chef and that we had I think up to over 400 people on our busiest day and we do breakfast lunch and dinner we have a raw food station gluten-free oil-free uh wok station salad bar it's it's quite quite a production it takes me about a year to recover (laughs) I heard that you had all of these different types of food and Unfortunately, or fortunately, you have to because yeah. there's there's such a range of plant-based eating today, and everybody's kind of noisy and insistent that theirs is the way, and they want to have it their way. How do you manage all these different stations? 
Uh, it's just comes with practice. I've been doing this for, for so long. And I, I just, uh, like for instance, in the main kitchen, I do the main line and then we do the SOS station and also a gluten-free station. So I'll look at a recipe and I'll say, well, what, what can I do? That's all of the above and take it that far and then separate out if I need to pull out an SOS batch and kind of add different seasonings to give it some flavor. And so it just, just comes with practice, but it's definitely, you're working with massive, like the soups you make, you're stirring with like a kayak paddle and, uh, and big vat. So it, it's fun. I, I, I enjoy it. <laughs> so personally, do you have a preference for any of these types of food for yourself and your family? We're, I'd say, close to a whole food plant-based diet. I mean, we don't have too many processed foods, but we're not like super rigorous about it. Like we do have oils and uh, salt in our in our diet. So uh, we're not as, we're not definitely not in the SOS camp, but we like to be as whole food plant-based as we can, 100%. And some people, when they say plant-based, they say it means like based on plants, but they can include other types of foods, but this is strictly 100% uh, all plant-based. Yeah, I want to strangle those people, okay? Now, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a peaceful vegan, of course, I don't mean that, but <laughs> I cannot tolerate how the word plant-based has been abused. Yeah, yeah. And it's been abused to the point where people will say they're plant-based because maybe 51% of the food they eat is plants, and I don't know how they're counting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it's a trend when it's on like shampoos and body products that say it's plant-based. Like it's a, uh, it's definitely catching. It's a catchphrase for, for sure. And I guess that's a good thing. <laughs> well, for me, every, yeah, the more people eat plant-based, the, whatever they call it is I'm, I'm happy with, you know, but it is confusing. <laughs> Okay, this is just out of the blue. You were mentioning okay. plant-based personal care products. Do you make any of your own being a chef? Uh, not so much. I mean, my Ashley, my wife, she's more of the, she'll do make her own like toothpaste and uh, cleaning products and things like that. That's that's her uh, department. We have, we have one of our businesses is the doctor and the chef where she right. teaches basically naturopathic uh, methods and plant-based nutrition. And I, that fits in the kitchen medicine category. So she, that's kind of her, her lane a little bit. Sure. I don't do much of it. I like to make my own body cream. Oh, really? What do you, what do you use in it? Yeah. I use shea butter, cocoa butter, and then some kind of oil lately. I've been using almond oil. It's like four oh, nice. to two, four to two to one. Okay. It's cool. My mix. And nice. I love the smell of cocoa butter. So yeah, it's just it's yummy. Nice. <laughs> and cool. and you want to eat it, but I don't eat it. Yep. Although you could. And that's, that's the point. Good, that's a good thing to go by because your <laughs> skin is point. absorbing. <laughs> exactly. So you're recovering from Summerfest. <laughs> I haven't been there in a long time, but. Oh, uh, really? When when were you there? I think I was there the year before you started. Okay. Yeah. Maybe. 2012 is when I started. Uh, maybe, maybe it was earlier than that. Mm-hmm. Well, next year will be their 50th. So I know that that's going to be a big one. Probably should yeah. try to make that one. <laughs> it's a great event, a fun place for vegans to just hang out and be like normal. Yeah, that's <laughs> why we I 
travel, we I brought my family just because I wanted our, my kids to be around other vegan kids to normalize it a little more so they're not the the only vegan in the room. <laughs> right. Well, a lot of parents say that about Summerfest. That's yeah. it's a great place for them to be with kids. And maybe sometime there'll be other, there'll be more places. Yep. <laughs> but that's what we've got right now. Okay. Most people today do not cook. Now, I don't have the numbers, but I just know the people that I know. And most people don't know where their kitchen is. Or if they do, they don't mm -hmm. know how to use anything in it. And it's crazy yeah. because I'm seeing a lot of luxury home designs now where they're getting two of everything, you know, two mm -hmm. islands and two dishes. And these people don't ever cook in their kitchen. So what's going on? <laughs> and then when you talk about improving your diet, Mm -hmm. and eating more plant foods people don't even know what that means because they don't even know what's in their food because they don't cook yeah so here you are helping people get back in the kitchen and learn how to make delicious food how's that going <laughs> it's going well it's uh it's interesting you touched on that because uh i've been you know a lot of us you know at various stages of our life we contemplate our our purpose and like how we can use our gifts you know in the best way and i was thinking of that that something of really being able to help people make the food taste good plant-based food tastes good and i i was thinking of what that was and i consolidated it to what i call the uh seven culinary keys to creating mm. amazing plant-based cuisine and i have a i have a free preview of it i also have an ebook that i just uh created on it and basically there are seven principles that when you kind of grasp them, it lets you open up like your inner chef and helps you create food that tastes good. So I could share what those the seven are is uh, yeah, the first the first one is uh, palate development. So that's something that just occurs over time as you start noticing some of the subtle flavors, like how much salt to put in a food. Uh, you know, different methods of like cooking, of undercooking, cooking it well, overcooking, you could see like those different flavors develop. The second key is what I call uh, template recipes. And it's one of my signature styles of teaching is where I show people uh, how to view the underlying formula of a recipe. And I've been teaching classes for 25 plus years. And this is really a big takeaway that people get is that when you break a recipe down into its formula, you could realize that even if you don't have the ingredients that a recipe calls for, you can make substitutions to create new recipes. So that I call that the template recipe uh, key. And then the next one is one of my big recommendations for people is uh, global spice blends. So mm -hmm. you could either purchase them or I have tons of recipes with different blends like Mexican, Ethiopian, Cajun. Italian, Indian, and really you could take, like for instance, at Summerfest, if I'm making a huge vegetable bean soup or something, just by changing the spice blend, it could be Ethiopian, Cajun, Moroccan. So having those spice blends on hand really helps people a lot with their creativity. The next key is, uh, the it kind of goes hand in hand with that one is uh, world sauces. So that's mm. where you look at uh, the spice blends, make their way into sauces and so if you have a good most chefs will say it's all in the sauce so 
that's where you learn like the pestos, the hoisins, teriyaki, peanut sauces, curries. When you have that in your repertoire, again, you could take a base dish and flavor it with all these world flavors. And as you know, our first book was called Vegan Fusion World Cuisine. So I love celebrating the, the wisdom and culture and cuisine from around the world. So that's the goes in with that key. Then there's a, the veganizing key. So with the veganizing, that's something that a lot of us, most of us aren't willing to just give up all the foods that we grew up with and that we mm -hmm. were accustomed to eating. And so there's techniques of just veganizing dishes. So you could have the flavors and the, the experience of the dishes that you had growing up. So you look at what ingredients are already naturally vegan and then you identify the animal product and then you come up with ways to replace it uh the next key is what i call uh the superfood nutrition so that's where it's important for as the food is medicine side to incorporate superfoods and and i like including raw foods and then the last key is the experimentation key and that's probably the most important key of just keep practicing and researching and going to like you know, international markets to discover new ingredients. So those are the seven culinary keys uh, in a nutshell. Excellent. I love it. <laughs> Especially the experimentation. And and probably, you know, this so, so many times a failed recipe can, start, can turn into something new and, and wonderful. Yeah, yeah. that's <laughs> uh, the Thomas Edison approach to to cooking that there's no failures. You just keep, keep learning and, and uh, improving as you go. Exactly. Now you're doing this virtually and I imagine uh, COVID helped you with that kind of concept, but how does that work? Do people buy their own food? Do they have so, to uh, make sure they have the right tools? Yeah. So I have a, I have a handful of programs that uh, I'm offering now. Uh, my core program is a four week uh, culinary immersion. And so it's uh, four hours a day uh, five days a week for four weeks of live kitchen time with me via Zoom. Uh, I send people a uh, first, I give them a suggested kitchen equipment list just, and I usually work with people. I'm kind of the ninja style. If you drop me anywhere with like a butter knife and scotch tape, I could usually figure something out. So right. uh, I help people with whatever they have. And then the week before each class week, the students receive uh, a daily lesson plan, a, a, a list for ingredient, a shopping list for the week, uh, and then prep list for each day of ingredients to have on hand for the recipes, uh, and then a link to the recipes and also a training manual. So, all in all, it's about a, a close to 700 pages of material. Uh, the course is approved for 120 continuing education credit hours by the American Culinary Federation. Uh, I have guest instructors. My wife, Ashley, does a healing foods, three healing foods modules. I have an expert uh, bread baker and pastry chef uh, and uh, pasta maker. So we cover the whole range of uh, vegan and raw food culinary techniques in a uh, in four weeks, it's a really comprehensive program. I, I love, actually really love the format. It's probably my favorite so far. So I'd like to see a program like yours in medical schools. Yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> because the best doctors are the ones that know how to cook. 
Yep. And no yeah, Harvard has, yeah, Harvard has pioneered a lot of the culinary medicine uh, and Tulane University. There's definitely, it's starting, I mean, from what I've seen in my years in the in the industry, it's definitely trending, in my opinion, in, in the right direction with that as far as culinary medicine. Mm -hmm. I know this is definitely doable. You've been doing it, but I've had an opportunity a couple of times. My partner, Gary, and I have hosted some cooking events online. Nice. And it's a lot of fun. We This was during COVID. We were, yeah. we were creating community and mm -hmm. it takes time. So I'm not surprised that your program is like four hours because to prepare something, you could probably do it yourself in 10 minutes, but you're instructing uh -huh. and having people do it and ask questions and finally get it and they're not as organized as you are so things <laughs> yeah, cooking well, can take a lot of time in the beginning yeah and I do so that's like a core mainly culinary based and then uh Ashley and I have uh three programs that that we're launching uh in September one is what we call nourish your life through food and it's a six-part virtual series it's about an hour and a half each week where we do, like you said, you, we start off like, where's the kitchen? I show people <laughs> which the sharp end of the knife is like the really basic, like how to get started. And Ashley does the uh, a real basic overview of plant-based nutrition. So you could answer your friends and concerned uh, relatives. And then we have two programs that are offshoots of that. One we do with an integrative oncologist, Dr. Bob mm -hmm. Ellis which is uh, Living Beyond Cancer, and it's for uh, cancer uh, survivorship. And uh, he's been doing that. He's like a third generation oncologist who's really committed to showing people how they can improve the quality of their life through a plant-based approach. And uh, that's called Living Beyond Cancer. And then we're really excited. We're doing a diabetes uh, remission reversal uh course with uh dr john gobble of the lifestyle medicine group and he has about a 50 percent success rate of getting people off of insulin uh who have diabetes and pre-diabetes and then a 50 percent uh those who don't get off of it can drop by 50 percent so that's a 12-part series that we're calling change your plate change your fate and it's a 12-part uh, virtual series on diabetes uh, reversal. So he has 50% success. Is that because people drop out or just medically <laughs> they can't reverse all the cases? Or do you well, know? It's, some are more complicated than others. That's kind of like the first approach is to go plant-based. Uh, and then of the people that don't completely reverse it, there's like a 50 percent decrease in their their amount of insulin that they need to take so it's still a pretty promising approach that I know you know like I'm sure we're on the same page as like having the food as medicine be our main I mean there's a place time and a place for every kind of intervention and you know pharmaceuticals and I definitely don't diss them I think the food as medicine is our first like line of defense so we're we're really excited about about that i know that learning how to cook and learning what to cook is like step one and then you do yeah. it 
but mm. a big challenge for so many people is consistency and sticking to it. Yep. And our society does not support it. They're mm. constantly like, come with me and come back to all your old favorites. Oh, yep. nobody's doing what you're doing. It's too yep. hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. You need a big, uh, a big why has to be, there has to be like that big motivating factor of why you would continue. And like, what I just like to encourage people is that that change doesn't have to be like a sacrifice. You don't have to like, it's, I think that's a big part of it is that if it feels like a sacrifice or if you're missing, feeling like you're missing out, that can help make it not stick, you know? So that that's where we, we like to focus on that, that part of it. What do you find is the most difficult for people to learn in your programs? Uh, the most difficult to learn. Uh, or do you just make everything easy? It feels like I get a lot of uh, experiences. I think there's certain techniques like uh, with uh, pastry and bread baking. Sometimes like if you're like, if your yeast isn't fully activated when you're doing a bread or there's when there's an interplay more of like uh, temperature and humidity that can affect the outcome of dishes. I think that challenges people to, you know, troubleshoot the where I'm at a high altitude here in uh, mm -hmm. Colorado. So that that plays a role. So uh, but as far as like the grasping of things like that template approach really is a kind of a lifesaver for people and feeling like that sense of like I can do this and that that's what I like to to encourage do people talk about cravings when they take your class yeah we talk about different like things that they grew up with that they like because each in the four-week course it's really comprehensive and we'll have a day devoted to like tapas or handhelds or entrees brunch items so things that people are people's favorites so we'll do like a crepe suzette and uh mm. like doing uh, frittatas and quiches and uh things that people are accustomed to that they grew up with and so they could say that yeah I, I used to love eating x y and z and now this is helping me you know satisfy that craving very nice there's <laughs> one other program that I do that is a teacher training and it's mm. this again, in like the activism category where I show people, I've done uh, dozens of teacher trainings around the world where I show people how to conduct a successful plant-based cooking demonstration, whether they want to do that for if they're like a health coach and want to include culinary education in with that, or they want to like do something at the adult education center for potlucks or just a lot of times people that take my class, their friends and family want to learn what they learn. So they become in that role of uh, showing people. And I think you you might have heard that ancient Chinese proverb that if you give a person a block of tofu, you could feed them for a day. And if you show them how to season and roast the tofu, you could feed them for a lifetime. Some, some version of that has become popular. So <laughs> the teacher training is really like that next level of activism for me, because it's empowering people to go out in their communities and share these skills with others. So I have a virtual version of that that's uh, coming out in October where I go 
through the ins and outs of how to do a successful cooking demonstration, um, give them a training manual for that. So I really love doing the teacher training. I, I love all the things I put my energy into. It was just something special about that one. You were talking about preparing spice mixes before, and I'm just wondering for Summerfest, how big are your spice mix containers? Uh, we're using massive quantities. So the, the spices would be in the, I mean, probably four cups of spices and some some recipes if you if you combine them together. Wow. Yeah, everything is, I, we, there was a couple of young kids that wanted to get a tour of the kitchen after the event and there, I brought them in. They must've been like eight or nine or seven, eight or nine years old or around then. And their eyes were just like popped open and they just, you see every, she's like, it's like in your own kitchen, but everything's bigger. You know? like magnified. Like, and yeah. do you shop locally? Do you bring things with you? How does that work? Uh, they're basically, we come in and their, their dining services, uh, run their, all of their employees are there. We just, the Summerfest crew, we come with just, uh, myself and two other chefs come and then we kind of organize and facilitate, but it's, it's a, they do all of the shopping and, uh, wow. all that for us and staff, you know, majority of the staffing, there's like 25 to 30 staff involved to pull it off. So it's it's a, definitely a huge production. So have they learned from you? Uh, yes, they, they uh, do. Well, it's interesting. They had the food provider is usually, and that, that's another thing that I love doing. I do corporate consulting where I'll work with chefs from like big food service providers like Aramark and Sodexo and this, uh, in the past, the the last 20 years or so, Sodexo was running the kitchen at, uh, it's at the University of Pittsburgh in Johnstown. And so I there was a crew there that some continuity of working the, the nine years that I've been there. And this year they had a, a new food service provider there. So it was the first event for all like the management and people ordering. So it was there, it was, very interesting, but yeah, I try to include as much kind of on the education side as I can. And the colleges are definitely trending more, like everyone was saying, you know, the, and the college students are requesting it more. So I, I'm pretty, I'm, I tend to be on the optimistic side, but I feel like there's a lot of good signs that this is making its way into, into the mainstream. I went to college a gazillion years ago in the 70s mm -hmm. and we had a vegetarian meal plan wow. not vegan but vegetarian it was ahead of itself and then unfortunately it disappeared and they didn't have it but <laughs> it was there when i was there maybe it was just there for me right <laughs> were you vegetarian back then i was and wow. i wasn't vegan yet but i was mm -hmm. vegetarian and um they they made a lot of these loafs mm -hmm. the i guess it was yeah a lot of loafs <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely come a very, very long way, the, the plant-based culinary scene. <laughs> right. Mark, I love what you're doing. Thank you for having me again on the on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I hope I'm able to see you sometime in person and, and eat some of your delicious food, because that's what yeah, it's all about. 
It's uh, one bite at a time. My friend would say, uh, peace begins in the kitchen. I like that. <laughs> so everybody find your kitchen and then find Mark and he'll tell you what to do. Well, you can find me at chefmarkreinfeld.com. I'll include links in the okay, post cool. for this podcast so people can find you very easily. I can offer a, if 20% discount on my programs to your listeners, if you want to put that, put that out there. Oh, as well. I like that. We like discounts. <laughs> Good. That's uh, well worth it. And the schedules and everything are, I imagine are on the, on yeah. the site. Everything's on the site. And then also I'm very responsive to emails. If people email me at info at chefmarkreinfeld.com, I'm happy to answer any questions as well. Okay, well, I don't know what the weather's like where you are, but stay cool and comfortable. Getting close to 100 here, so that's definitely important. Right, I know. We're going through this climate crisis, and the best thing that we can do, folks, is stop eating animals. <laughs> Period. Amen. <laughs> right. I hope the best for you, for you and your family. Take care. Keep making delicious things. and. Thanks so much. Keep best. doing what you're doing. It's a very important work. Thank you for so much for having me on the show. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye, Mark. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you. That was Chef Mark Reinfeld. And you can sign up for any of his vegan culinary trainings. They're virtual. Whether you need help getting started in the kitchen or you want to up your level of culinary expertise, these trainings are for you. They're virtual. Easy. And you get a 20% discount from listening to this program. I just got the code. It's REAL20, R-E-A-L-20. So I hope you take advantage of that. Now, on to part two. It is a great pleasure and honor <laughs> to bring on my guest, Dr. Richard Schwartz. He's been on the program since the beginning. I think you were one of my first guests on this podcast back in 2009. You have done an amazing amount of work. You're a prolific writer, a dedicated activist at only 89 years young. <laughs> Absolutely. I was born at a very early age, so that sort of helps. <laughs> and you have a great sense of humor, which is so necessary when we do the work that we do. And I look up to you as an inspiration for where I might be when I get to be 89. <laughs> so we're celebrating because you wrote a book 20 years ago. You wrote a lot of books, but one of them in particular is Judaism and Global Survival. The 20th anniversary edition has come out. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in this program. Okay, sounds good. The book is very comprehensive, and you connect so many things in Judaism with the world today and how we might make this world a better place. We need so much help at this point because so many of our systems are failing. And of course, you promote a vegan diet and so much more. So we like to talk about the vegan diet on this program because it's called It's All About Food and how it connects to so many things, such as health and environment and treatment of animals. But we're really in a climate crisis right now. We've been talking about it for decades. You've been talking about it for decades. And now we're seeing what so many of us have predicted to happen. 
I thought we might jump into what's new since you wrote the book. I know you've added things to the book to make it more current, and we can focus on the conditions today and what the some of the solutions might be. Okay, well, um, you mentioned the climate crisis just today, and I'm busy writing a letter about that. Of course, the uh, audience can't see it. You can see it. There's an article just in today's Jerusalem Post. By the way, I've become the number one letter writer in the Jerusalem Post. I had one published just today on, uh, you know, just after Tishabov, the Jewish holiday that commemorates the destruction of the temple, where the Jews did not listen to the warnings of uh, Prophet Jeremiah. So my theme in the letter was, will we again fail to heed the warnings? Anyway, just to read this, this is the article in the Jerusalem Post today. Because if we don't deal with climate change, Israel will become a very unpleasant place to live in. And of course, as you know, it's not just Israel, it's the entire world. And we're seeing the headlines every single day. As you know, this year is probably going to go down as the hottest year in history. June, hottest June ever. July, the hottest July. And they announced that even before July was finished. Two days before that, because it's so too hot, and wildfires increased and all over. And I know in uh, I'm in Israel now, and in the U.S. they're suffering some days from uh, air pollution because of the fires in Canada. So this is the greatest threat to humanity: climate change. And uh, one of the things that is different in the book is I found out a lot more about. Uh, the tremendous effect of animal-based diets on uh, climate change. That's the number one reason. I always knew that it was very significant, but in reading a book called Food is Climate by Glenn uh, Merzer, and he points out two very important things. Number one, because of animal agriculture, the cows and other ruminants emit methane, and that methane is only in the air and atmosphere for 10, 15 years. But during that time, it's over 80 times as potent as carbon dioxide and heating up the atmosphere. But most super important is that the number of trees in the world, I don't know, estimate 6 trillion millennia ago, and now it's half of that, about 3 trillion. And we know, of course, the trees absorb the sequestered carbon dioxide. So the fact that there less trees and the tragedy, tragedy is, as we speak, the tropical rainforest in Amazon and other places being destroyed. So the only hope of reducing that very dangerous atmosphere of carbon dioxide, which is way, way above, it's about 420 parts per million, way above the 350 parts per million that the climate experts think is a, a threshold for safety. So only by reforesting, it's over 40% of the world's ice tree land that is used for grazing and growing tree crops for animals. And that much of that was former forest, that can be reforested. Then there's a chance, if that word sequester again, much of the atmosphere called the oxide, bring it down to a safe level. So that's the reality. We have a choice between a mostly vegan world I remember as a child in my Jewish upbringing, learning about Israel and the things that Israel had done to be sustainable or to 
to make that little piece of land livable because Israel is primarily in a hot desert. There was this concept of charity by contributing money to to grow trees because it was acknowledged that growing trees was so important for the environment long before we were talking about what you just mentioned. And then, of course, Israel got involved in desalinization a long time before anybody else was doing it because water is so essential. But now, unfortunately, this is a global crisis, and even Israel is suffering with the hot temperatures and droughts because, as you mentioned in the book, we are all connected. This is all one planet, and we all need to act for each other and not just ourselves. Right. Well, as I in many of my articles recently, and people are saying more and more, there's no planet B. And as you mentioned, Israel, unfortunately, the Mediterranean area is heating up much faster than other areas. Climate experts are saying that this area is going to uh, become much hotter and drier. And the military experts indicate that that means, unfortunately, many desperate, hungry, thirsty refugees fleeing that tens of millions. And that's going to make instability, terrorism, violence much greater. By the way, yeah. one of the things I'm now pushing, and it's uh, part of my letter to the editor and what we were saying about that article I mentioned before, is that the rabbis should declare that eating meat and other animal products really, they call how luckily unjustifiable. In other words, very inconsistent with basic Jewish teachings. And this is because, as I try to point out in the article, that uh, m- many Jewish teachings are violated. That is, uh, we have mandates to take care of our health, to treat animals with compassion, protect the environment, to uh, help hungry people, to conserve resources, seek and pursue peace. These are all very seriously violated. And uh, can't go to detail and all of that, but as you know, there's many peer-reviewed articles that show that uh, animal-based diets contribute strongly to heart disease, uh, many chronic cancer, diabetes, stroke, and many other life-threatening diseases. And of course, the way that animals are treated in factory farms very inconsistent with Jewish teachings. And uh, it's, as we mentioned before, it may cause climate change. So I'm hoping if rabbis do that because you know they want people to lead Jewish lives and be consistent with Jewish teachings. And again, uh, animal-based diets uh, today in modern factory farms so inconsistent with Jewish values. Hopefully, if they did that, many Jews would shift towards vegan diets. And with that example, hopefully, many others would. And again. Reforesting, bring down a carbon dioxide level, that's the only chance we have for averting the climate catastrophe. Unfortunately, we all know the expression, it's an elephant in the room. Now there's also that cow in the room. And uh, many, many articles about we have to sort of solar energy, wind power, all of that very true, we're all part of the solution. But they ignore that cow in the room that unless we shift away, from the animal-based diet, stop cutting down trees, destroying forests, the Amazon and elsewhere, and reforest. No hope of averting the climate catastrophe. And we wonder what kind of world are we leaving for future generations? 
So we need that change. You just talked about what you would like the religious leaders to be doing. And you mentioned, I noted page 222 in your book, Should Prayer Inspire Activism? You talked about a 2005 study. And I think that the different religious institutions, this is a great place for activism because so many people come together as a community and they come to be inspired by their leaders on a weekly basis or a regular basis, and yet they're not being given the message that they need to hear. And you mentioned this study saying that those that go, the, the study found that Jews who attend synagogue services at least once a week were twice as likely to support the war in Iraq and to define themselves as politically conservative than Jews who seldom or never go to synagogue. And we don't need people to be conservative. We need people to be more progressive. And, mm -hmm. and here is a great place for them to learn, but they're not. Right. It's, it's amazing that... Uh, uh, Shouldn't be a political issue. There's such a strong scientific consensus. A poll showed 97% of climate experts. Every single science academy has taken a position. And most important, over a thousand peer reviewed articles in respective science journals, all of them in one direction. It's that political conservatism that, uh, you know, it's amazing, it's especially. Among the Orthodox, 76% backing Donald Trump with all the backers that he has, et cetera. Now, in a, a different book uh, called Who Stole My Religion, I argue that Judaism is a radical religion in the best sense of the term. You think of first Hebrew Abraham smashing the idols of his father, arguing with God in terms of the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. They say, the word Hebrew comes from like uh, the other side. They say Abraham, the Jewish patriarch, was on one side of the river, and the other pagan world on the other side. And the Jewish biblical prophets, the greatest champions of social justice, and the teachings in Judaism to pursue peace and justice. And uh, 36 times it indicates you should be kind to the stranger, not oppress the stranger. Because we were strangers, you know what it's like. We were strangers in the land of Egypt. I remember going to Hebrew school and learning about the Torah and uh, all kinds of different principles. And I'll be honest with you, I was turned off. And in reading your book, I learned about all these things that I was never taught mm. that are really essential, not just for Jewish people, but for all peoples. Mm -hmm. And there are so many wonderful things that we can all learn from. And, and some of them are just very basic, like we're supposed to learn them when we're in kindergarten about sharing. <laughs> we, you know, we can have what we need for a basic, simple life, but then we don't want to have too much because we need to share and we want to make sure that everyone has enough. But instead, we live in a world where there's so much poverty and starvation and inequality, and these basic principles have not been learned. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, one thing that's really amazing is with all the hunger, and it's like 9 million people which have made a diet and year from uh, lack of enough food, and almost 10% of the world's people chronically malnourished, that 70% of the grain in the U.S 
and uh, maybe 30 or 40 percent worldwide pet animals depend on pet water. Now, it makes it even more shameful. We take very healthy products of things like soy and oats and corn, and they are very high in fiber and complex carbohydrates, devoid of cholesterol and saturated fat. Feed them to animals who get very unhealthy food with just the opposite characteristics, uh, no fiber, for example. So it's really uh, incredible. There'll be enough food for all, and yet uh, uh, the animal-based diets wasting, and also wasting so much water. It takes up to 13 times as much water for a person on an animal-based diet than for a person on a vegan diet. Much of that for irrigating the feed crops that we mentioned in 70% of that grain being fed to animals. In your book, you have a section called Conditions for the World's People Today, and you cite a a number of facts from the World Vision's 2021 report and global poverty facts, FAQs, and how to help. And it's heartbreaking just to read this list, to know the condition that we are in in the world today. There's a lot of wonderful things in your book, concentrated. It's over, what, 300 pages. and and even for people that aren't Jewish, there are just great tenets for life that we should all subscribe to. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to also bring up, you mentioned the challenging teachers of Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardoso. Right. Can we dig into that a little bit? Because they're very interesting. And then you added your own. To those, so that was around two thirty nine in your book. What were the challenging teachings, teachings of Rabbi Nathan Lopez Cardoso? He says, "Well, you shouldn't like I, Abraham Joshua uh, Heschel, my favorite rabbi, that uh, we shouldn't take things for granted and we can do ideas, dynamic ideas. We have to teach people how to think rather than what to think. So these are some of the things that uh, we should get into, and especially in school system. And I do have a chapter, I think, in uh, how to revitalize Judaism. And one of them is that you uh, should put into it Jewish teachings on justice. You know, it's a tzedek, tzedek, adult, justice, justice, shout out for two. And uh, one rabbi based on um, the fact that for so many, uh, 36 times they said, it indicates we should be kind to the stranger, compassionate, not oppressive stranger. He says that Judaism teaches a special kind of justice, and he calls that empathic justice, where we take into account other people, and it's not just uh, I'm right, you're wrong, but you know, and in general, can we find common ground? So yeah, he wrote a very powerful book that's up by Jason uh, Lopez Cardozo. By the way, he's endorsed the idea that rabbis should declare that animal-based products meet other daily and eggs should be declared halakhically unjustified or inconsistent with Jewish values. Jews should not be eating these products. So an example is, you know, we're supposed to be a light onto the nation based on Isaiah's prophecy, and uh, we can make, make quite a difference. Now, Israel's been in the news quite a bit about politics in particular just like many other places, even here in the United States, our politics is just gone crazy. We are polarized everywhere. 
we're all taking sides. I'm right and you're wrong and yeah. nobody's listening and things are just getting worse and worse and worse. And the question is, how can we get back to a place where to start with, we listen? Right. Because as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, we all share the same planet Earth, the same home, the same air, the yeah. same water, which is becoming very precious. And we cannot survive unless we follow these basic principles of listening mm -hmm. and understanding and putting past issues aside. We have to start fresh and say we want a future for ourselves and our families. And okay, I made mistakes, you made mistakes. How do we move forward? Absolutely. Well, your key question is. Can we disagree without being disagreeable? And, uh, you know, they say when the second temple was destroyed because what they call sinas unum, unjustified hatred. Now, I think in another book, I write, most people look at the world in terms of us versus them, good versus evil, you know, uh, black and white and all. And uh, others, unfortunately, only a small minority look at it and say, can we find common ground? Can we find solutions? We know that uh, there's negatives on the other side, there's some evil, but uh, usually on our side is also negative. So we have to go beyond that. And I think you're 100% right. It's their polarization. And Israel is a super example of that. As you know, as we speak, 30 consecutive weeks, hundreds of thousands have been protesting. Uh, reservists, the, the volunteers in Israel are saying that. They're not going to continue serving if the uh, uh, coalition that's governing now continues to try to weak the Israeli judiciary because that's our main source of checks and balances. So there's a super amount of hatred there, and, and we have to overcome that absolutely. And as we sort of by before, uh, trying to build a climate catastrophe could be something that should bring all the people in the world together. Because, you know, if we were attacked by aliens from outer space, everybody would say, well, we've got to work together, forget about our local problem. This is such an existential threat to humanity. When you realize how hot this summer has become, when you see the wildfires, when you see the flooding, and every single day, they have things they used to call a hundred year storm or something, you know, which one year in a hundred is going to come now. They're happening almost every year, sometimes more than one simultaneously. So you're 100% right. We have to get beyond that. Uh, uh, you know, we have to find a wisdom for science and realize that uh, we have to do everything possible to avert a climate catastrophe, other environmental threats, you know, the extinction that's going on so rapidly, deforestation, the soil being eroded, the pollution. So, <laughs> I agree with you 100% on that. I'm just wondering how uncomfortable does the world have to get? So many of us who are privileged, we can turn on our air conditioning when it gets too hot. I even have these air filtering systems in my home with HEPA filters so that 
when the fires come and the smoke comes, if any of it leaks in my house, I have a method to keep the air in my home clean. But what happens when the grid breaks down? <laughs> There's no power for us to access these useful tools. Then will we respond? It's such a challenge. I like to, I think you just mentioned it, but I, I look at Israel and Palestine as a microcosm of what's going around in the world. And if, if there could be a solution reached there, then that could be a model for everywhere. Oh, absolutely. Now, you know, I have a chapter on that. And uh, one of the points I make is exactly what you said, that imagine if we could come up with a solution, then uh, <laughs> others look at it and say, well, uh, we can also. And it's so, so essential, again, that uh, we have to unite in averting a climate catastrophe and... Uh, uh, certainly get away from all the violence and all and uh, hitting back and forth and getting revenge. You did this to us, we're going to do that to you and back and forth. That certainly has to change. You wrote this book 20 years ago yeah. and you've updated it brilliantly. What are the good things you've seen in the 20 <laughs> years since you wrote this book? Because we talk a lot about doom and gloom, but there are some good yeah. things, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, one of the good things is, first of all, people are realizing more and more about the climate threats and about how animals are raised so horribly and the health aspects. And it's very encouraged, especially by the young people who are very aware sometimes uh, going out on strike on Friday uh, with regard to climate change and uh, urging their parents. You know, Greta Thunberg, of course, being a role model in that. So that uh, can make a big difference. So, And also another positive thing is that there has been a shift toward solar energy, toward uh, wind power. Prices have gone down. It's getting more and more competitive. There are positive things. UN is having climate conferences, unfortunately. Again, they're ignoring that calendar room, but pushing for other things. And in 2015 in Paris, there was a climate conference UN sponsored. 195 nations, I think, was all agreeing how to respond to climate threats. Uh, most of them agreeing to cut their greenhouse gas emissions significantly. Unfortunately, it was not binding. And most nations are behind their pledges. And unfortunately, even if they, every nation kept the pledge, it would not be enough to really uh, cut down on uh, continued climate threats. You have children and grandchildren. And mm -hmm. I'm curious, are any of them following in your footsteps? <laughs> are they activists <laughs> like you are? Or do they think Grandpa Richard is kind of crazy? <laughs> well, uh, I do have some who are vegans also, not all, because uh, uh, I didn't become a vegan or vegetarian even until, what is it, uh, 1978 or so. Mm. So uh, I think they supportive, but not as not as activists. And maybe part of it is uh, the Jewish educational system. They're not stressing this enough, you know, so, and unfortunately, Many of the friends are not uh, into it as much, but uh, they say some vegetarian, vegan, they understand what I'm doing, they support it, but uh, not, not as much activist. I can imagine you're frustrated. You've been working on this for so long and you've seen the evidence in everything that you've studied in the scriptures 
we knew about this for a long time. We knew how humanity should behave, how people should act with one another. We know these things and things have been predicted. You even mentioned, I, there's one more thing I wanted to bring up before we go. And that was, uh, if we substitute international corporations for kings in some of the Jewish teachings, we can see similar exploitation today. And that's exploitation of people and animals and the planet. The international corporations today are the power people, the, the people calling the shots, the people making the decisions. And the, and the corporations themselves, we here in the United States, we give them rights as if they are individual persons. The corporation, mm -hmm. the corporation is this incredible power with rights, mm -hmm. even yeah. greater than the kings <laughs> right. of yesterday. Yeah. And unfortunately, they know, for example, Exxon knew that their product was causing uh, climate change. And uh, I just uh, viewed a book called The Humane Hoax. And oh, yeah. pointed out what, uh, I don't know if you know, Hope Bohannock, really excellent book, what the animal industry does to try to convince people that they're really not mistreating animals. And they make it like, uh, if it's cage-free, for example, there's maybe a step forward, but the egg-laying hens are still very close together. They're the beaked uh, because of the unnatural conditions. And the male uh, chicks are destroyed right away because they can't lay eggs. They haven't been artificially programmed to have much flesh as the uh, other chickens raised for that purpose are. So uh, all of these industries, and you know, we had in the tobacco before, you know, profit, mentioned the biblical prophets, how important they were, but unfortunately the word prophet with P-R-O-F-I-T is one that dominates more than uh, the P-R-O-P-A-C-T prophets, unfortunately. We could talk about this for hours, but our time is up. <laughs> and I wanted to thank you for coming on and speaking with me today and for doing everything you're doing. I'm looking at the cover of the book and I love the artwork. <laughs> it's just a vision of where we would love to be, right? All the animals together yeah, right. and the people yeah. all cuddling up together and sniffing each other and <laughs> and caring. Yeah. Right, right. Well, I'll, many, many thanks. And I want to thank you very much for this opportunity and commend you for your many years of involvement. And I wish you much continued success. And you live long and prosper. <laughs> thank you. You too. Okay. Take so, care. Shalom. Shalom from Israel. All the best. Thank you. That's our show for today. I hope you've enjoyed it with Chef Mark Reinfeld. Remember, you can get a discount code for 20% off any of his vegan culinary virtual trainings. And Dr. Richard Swartz, who just keeps on keeping on with brilliant activism and writings. I hope you will check out his books, the most recent 20th anniversary edition of Judaism and Global Survival. Thanks for joining me today. I'm Karen Hartglass. You've been listening to It's All About Food. You can find me at responsibleeatingandliving.com. Send comments and questions to info at realmeals.org. And of course, everyone, please have a delicious week. Mm -hmm.